right, Runa, how are we doing? Excellent, excellent, excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here. And my mic seems a little bit hot. Is that just me? Maybe not. Okay, great. Hey, I'm really glad you're here. I hope that you find this to be a safe place. If you're visiting Remnant, you're trying to figure out what this is all about, uh, welcome to the club. That's exactly who we are. We, we are all just a group of people who, who circumstances in our life or moments or what something just triggered us to begin to wonder about this Jesus and God. And maybe for many of us, we grew up in church and we sort of drifted off. And, and at some point in our life, we, we just had to know. And it wasn't coming from our head. It was coming from our heart. We got to a point in our life where we just had to know more about Jesus. And so many of us came to places like this and maybe to this church and we began to learn and we began to study his word. And, and the weirdest thing happened. We thought we were coming here to gain information. And what we gained was a relationship. And as we studied and we learned and we read, we began to fall in love with this Jesus and we discovered that he loves us too. And so what's happened is we come back every week because we don't fully understand it. So we just come back every week and we try to learn a little bit more. And as we learn a little bit more, we surrender a little bit more. And as we surrender a little bit more, we're transformed a little bit more. And what we find is that we don't change our lives. God changes us from the inside. And that's what happens to us. And, and we get excited about it. So we worship him and we praise him. And, and if you don't know him, my prayer is at some time uh, that you'll really begin to seek him with your heart. And so we've been together for quite a while now looking at the end times, the 12 weeks of end times followed by now we're in our seventh week of Revelation. And we've been looking at this incredible book that, that ends the Bible. And what we've been talking about is that this book is not that hard to understand. It makes a lot of sense provided that you've read the 65 books that precede it. That from beginning to end, there is a narrative in God's word. Every story, every theme, everything is about Jesus. And in Revelation, we get to Revelation and all these threads, all these themes come to completion at the end of the Bible. And it turns out that it's not revelations, it's revelation. There's only one, and the revelation is Jesus Christ himself. God's going to show us what Jesus looks like in a way perhaps that we haven't seen him before. And we've been looking at that as we go. And we talked about how this book's kind of hard to understand because God is going to take John the Apostle, and he's going to take him up to heaven. He's going to show him some incredible stuff, and John's got to try to figure out how to use words to share with us what he's seeing. And a lot of times he looks at things and he just goes, well, it's kind of like this. And it's sort of like that. And they had heads like this. And you can just see that he is overwhelmed with the supernatural things of God. And then we talked at one point about how we struggle with the wrath of God. That it's hard for us to imagine this God who pours out such enormous wrath. And yet we talked about how it's hard for us to see that because we underestimate his holiness. And because we don't really understand or think about how holy he is, we don't really think about how offensive sin really is to him and how he has to pour out his wrath in justice and that Jesus had to take that wrath for us. We're in this timeline in the series. We, we've looked at the seven seals. This scroll can now be opened and, and the seventh seal contains within it seven trumpet judgments. Heaven and earth have stood still as if a collective gasp of what is about to happen. And now heaven and earth have stood still. And it's almost as if those in heaven can't believe what's about to happen. Each judgment more severe than the one before it. Millions of people by this point, mid-tribulation, they've died. Many believers have been martyred. We saw a multitude in heaven of people who came out of the tribulation who were too numerous to count. John said millions of millions of millions have already given their lives for Christ, having found Christ during the tribulation. And we're going to see that at each one of these trumpets, a third of an ecological system is going to be destroyed in judgment. Now, we live in a world right now where, where there's a lot of people very concerned about our planet. They're worried about the depletion of the ozone. They're, they're worried about destruction of rainforests or maybe a particular animal that's endangered. And there's a passionate concern to protect in, in, um, endangered species. 
But for many people, protecting the environment has gone beyond just protecting the environment. It's become idolatry. They have begun to worship, as God says, the creation rather than the creator. They give a tribute. They attribute things of God to Mother Nature. Now, there's no question that fallen man has failed at our responsibility to take care of this earth. There's no doubt about it. There has been damage that has been done to the earth as a result of our sin. The entire earth carries the weight and burden of our sin. But that pales in comparison to what God is going to do one day. The powerful judgments of the future tribulation are going to utterly destroy the earth causing wholesale, unimaginable destruction of the environment. The time the trumpet judgment approaches, the the world will already have seen all kinds of frightening things. Seven-year tribulation period unfolds. We know there's going to be wars and famines and earthquakes and plagues, and, and there's going to be celestial objects smashing into the world. We're going to see things that we don't fully understand. But when the trumpets come... Everything gets worse. The serial judgments that the trumpets are going to unleash will hit the earth and wicked people just as they're crawling out of some caves. If you remember, we left them there. The world was shaking. The the leaders of the world ran into the caves. Instead of crying to the rock of ages to save them, they cried to the rocks to save them. The rocks couldn't save them. And they're freaking out to the point that they're begging to die and they can't. And now everything has stopped and it's become calm. And they're starting to come out of the caves. And they begin to think, wow, it's over. It's not over. It's just getting ready to start. First four trumpets are described in a very brief and kind of straightforward manner. Far more details given about the last three trumpets. The first four trumpets all deal directly with the earth itself. They are real events that will happen in real time. Physical events that are going to affect the whole earth. It also becomes evident as we look at these trumpet judgments that they begin to remind us of judgments we've seen before. We talk often about in Revelation, we see what's happened in prior books and we see them in a new and fresh way. In Egypt, when Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go... You may know this, but each of the ten plagues that were released on Israel targeted a specific Egyptian god that they had placed their trust in. They worshipped the god of the Nile, so God turned the Nile into blood. They worshipped the god of the sun, so God turned the sun dark. They worshipped themselves, so God struck down the firstborn. Essentially, we see with every plague, a false God has been brought down by the real God as if he's saying to them, who's God now? And we're going to see the same thing happens in Revelation with these trumpet judgments. You want to worship creation as your God? Watch who's really in control of creation. You want to worship the stars and get your guidance from there? Let me show you who's really in charge of the stars. You want to worship the demonic? Let me release a few from the abyss and let them go out into the world and do what they really want to do to you. You want those things to happen? I'll show them to you, God says. Everything God does is with intent and purpose. There are no random judgments. God is not just up there whirling things away, one after the other, whatever he can think of to do. These are specific judgments against specific idolatries. And they're targeted and specific. Revelation 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, as was a third of the trees, and the green grass was burned up. Now hail is frequently associated in Scripture with divine judgment. So is fire. So the combination of fire mixed with blood was actually prophesied by the prophet Joel. And I will show you wonders in heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It sounds to us like John is trying to describe this huge meteor storm that's hitting the earth. 
Thousands of meteors perhaps flashing through the sky, impacting the earth and starting fires all over the place. God brings judgment. He's not a passive bystander. These aren't natural things that are just happening. Okay? It's really important to understand. God can use whatever method he wants. But he's bringing judgment. And here's something that's really critical. The people on earth aren't going to be going, wow, this is really weird what nature's doing. They're going to know that God Almighty is doing these things. They recognize it in the seals. If you remember, they knew that these were judgments of God that were happening to them. These weren't just natural phenomenon or the world getting kind of weird. This is God's judgment. The effect of these fires, of these meteors, of these flashes from the skies would be destruction of crops and death of animals and It was was fitting because these are people, many who live today perhaps, who have been worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They've been looking at the world and they've been going, oh, mother nature, oh, nature, oh, all this stuff. And God's going, let me show you what I can do with the spoken word. Fallen mankind failed to recognize and honor God as creator, choosing instead to make God out of the earth. God basically says, look, you made God your nature. Let me show you who's really in charge here. A few weeks ago, we looked at what Peter had to say about these times. Remember, he talked about scoffers who would come. And they would say that Jesus is never coming back. That, you know, a thousand years, Peter says, are like a day. And he spoke of water being stored up the first time that God flooded the earth. And then he said, in the last days... But the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The day of judgment that Peter says is coming is here now. Fire is being poured out from heaven. It's stored up and it's being hurled to earth. God has been patient. He's been hoping that all would come to Christ. But remember Peter's warning in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. That's exactly what we're going to see in the trumpet judgments. The deeds of the people of the earth are going to be laid bare and exposed. Verse 8. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The first judgment falls on land. The second judgment falls on the sea. God created the sea to be a a source of life and food and oxygen and, and to nurture us and to bring evaporation from the ocean into the land and to provide for us. But but God, but man said, you know what? Actually, God didn't create us. We came out of the sea. We were little bitty creatures and we came onto a rock and then we stayed on a rock for a while. Not a rock the country, a rock like a a rock. Could have been in a rock. Anyway, and so we stayed on this rock and then all of a sudden we transformed into this being and then we kept transforming, we kept transforming. Next thing you know, bingo, we're human. And God's like, excuse me, but I gave you the sea so that you would see me in it. And so this second judgment is a judgment against the sea. This great meteorite or asteroid or whatever it is, surrounding by flames, flashed the Earth's atmosphere and is on a collision course with Earth. This has been done in every Hollywood movie, in case you haven't noticed. There's movie after movie of some asteroid somewhere heading to Earth. Well, it's going to happen. It's this judgment. Everyone will see it, either on TV or live, and the telescopes will see it coming, and there'll be people on all the news stations going, I don't think it's going to hit, I think it's going to hit, I don't think it's going to hit, it's not going to be so bad, it's going to be horrible, and then this thing is going to smash into the ocean. And a third of the ocean waters are, are going to cause the sea to turn blood. The impact will cause huge tsunamis. They're going to destroy a third of the ships on the world's oceans. It's going to ruin all kinds of transportation. So the first two trumpet judgments are going to be against the land and the sea. 
And God's going to begin to release his judgment onto a sinful world. Verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The third angel sounds his trumpet, and another flaming object is hurled towards the earth. John describes it as the latest of terrors and a great sign from heaven. This great star that falls from heaven. Now, the word that's used here for star can mean any celestial body other than the sun and the moon. The massive object that smashes into us reminds us of of a comet or a meteor because it's got a tail and it seems to be coming through the atmosphere. And it, too, is going to smash into the earth. It's reminiscent of the water turned foul at the Egyptians in the Nile. This giant meteor, something huge, not like the size of a car, maybe like the size of a state. This thing is massive. Think about the craters on the moon. They're from the impact of meteors. Most of the meteors that hit the moon less than 10 feet across. There's an impressive meteor crater in Arizona. That crater was made by a meteor that's only five yards across. This is going to be like the earth being struck by a cue ball. That's what's going to happen in this judgment. Wormwood uh, translate uh, asthenos. It's a a word here in the New Testament. It's used about eight times in in the Old Testament. It's always associated with bitterness and poison and death. And it's always associated with poison water. So this poison is going to destroy a third, and it's going to come in, and it's going to be the opposite of other things that God has done. There have been times when God has poisoned water and made it pure. But this time, it's going the other direction. Now, in the first two trumpet judgments, we don't hear about any human deaths, but in this one we do. Many men died because of the waters because they were bitter. So you can imagine that these first three trumpets are going to leave people a little shaken, a little messed up. God hasn't even begun yet to really start pouring his rash out on them. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. The fourth angel sounds the trumpet, and the movement goes from earth to spiritual things and divine judgment in the heavens. No doubt, people will be trying to figure out what to do about global warming and what to do about all the things that are happening on the earth. But in the midst of that kind of activity, this new disaster is going to come. A third of the sun and the moon and the stars are going to be smitten. The the word in Greek means plague. It's as if the heavens are going to be affected by a plague from God so that a third of them are going to be darkened. This partial eclipse reminds us of one of the Egyptian plagues. But however, the loss of heat is going to cause temperature changes. It's going to affect crops. Isaiah spoke of this day. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Ezekiel saw this day as well. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I'll cover the sun as a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Even Jesus talked about this day. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, the dimming of these celestial lights is going to set up a very eerie moment on earth. People are already going to be freaked out. 
The world as they know it is crumbling. It's almost like it's ripping open from its core. And the heavens have become dim and it's become ominous and kind of dark. And then we get the bird that flies over. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Imagine this moment. It's dark on earth. It's darker than it should be. God's obviously in control of the heavens. They know God is punishing the earth. And then this eagle flies over with a loud voice and he says, Woe, woe, woe. And we've talked about how something that's repeated three times has enormous significance. And this eagle says, You ain't seen nothing yet. Here come the next ones. Woe to those who are on the earth. And his loud voice assures that people will be able to hear this. The eagle's warning that the last three trumpets will be even more devastating than the first four. God's wrath and judgment are coming to those who dwell on the earth. And what we're going to find out that's incredible is even though they know these are judgments from God, they're still not going to turn to him. This eagle's message is going to give them one last opportunity before the fifth trumpet blows. And particularly before the sixth trumpet blows, it's kind of like this is your last chance. You've got to turn back to Jesus now. We are, we are at that point. We've gone through seven seals. We've gone through the judgments, the fifth and sixth judgment. After that, it's pretty clear in the Bible that there's no one left except those who are sealed on earth. That everybody has turned from God who's still here. And then the bold judgments come. And this eagle's flying over kind of as a warning saying, pay attention, please. And we're going to see in a moment that a large part of the earth's population is about to die. And the fifth trumpet seems to be their last chance to repent and turn back to God. Remember that every one of these judgments is God saying, please, don't make me have to bring out the next judgment. I'm a righteous God. I have to do what's right. I don't want to punish you. Please let me seal you with my seal. Let me protect you from these punishments. But we see from these judgments that God is systematically dismantling all the things that people have put their faith and trust in. These aren't random acts of supernatural displays of power. They are specific. They're targeted. They're appropriate. He at times limits them. You can only affect one third. You can only impact one third of the people. You can't go here. You can't do this. You can't touch anything until these people are sealed. God is in full control here. He's not out of control, full of anger. He's not up in heaven spiraling down things out of some godly rage. He is careful, calculated, measured, just, and his judgments are appropriate. The first four trumpets reveal the severity of God's judgment. He attacks the things that keep people alive. Food, water, things that they have comfort in such light and the stars and and people for years have just taken for granted the fact that the sun rises and the moon is up as if as if it just happens and god's like no no, i got control of that too god claims his lordship by disrupting the things that aren't disruptible you know when things happen in our world there's always this moment where we kind of realize that something bigger than us is happening that we're not really in control These first four trumpets, even though they're horrible, and even though they're poured out on people, they also have within them evidence of God's mercy. He tells them only a third. I don't don't want to kill everybody. I I have to pour out judgment, but but we're going to limit how much I pour out because I still want people to come to me. And in these judgments, we see that he spares more people than he destroys. Each of the first four trumpets affect the universe in some way. But with the fifth trumpet, we move from the spiritual or from the physical to the spiritual realm. We're going to start seeing some supernatural things that are happening in the heaven places. Revelation 9.1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit. 
He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And we're going to see that there are four things that happen when the fifth trumpet blows. The, the pit of the abyss is unlocked. The second thing we're going to see happen is the power is unleashed. The third is the appearance is going to be unveiled. And then the fourth is we're going to see who's actually leading these demonic things on earth. So the first thing that happens is the pit is opened. Now this star that falls is not some inanimate object like we've seen in the other trumpets. This is an angelic being that is said to have fallen to earth. The reference is to Satan. Isaiah described a time when Satan initially rebelled and was cast to earth, but this is a separate fall from earth. Even though Satan has been cast to earth, he still has access to the throne. He's still our accuser before the throne of God. But we're going to see in later chapters of Revelation that a battle breaks out and he is cast to earth. As a result of that defeat, he will come down to earth. And at that point, literally all hell will break loose. This star fallen from heaven is a person. Okay, so, so time out for a minute. You're telling me that Satan has the keys to hell. Is that what we're saying here? Because this says that the keys of hell are given to this fallen angel who's Satan. The last time we saw the keys to hell, they were not in the hands of Satan. Revelation 1, 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What we find out is that this key to the abyss is given to Satan by Jesus for a specific time and a specific purpose. And Satan thinks he's going to go down, open the abyss, his demons are going to fly out, and they're going to fight God for him. But like everything Satan does, God uses for good. And in chapter 20, we're going to see that Jesus takes those keys back and locks everybody back up again in chapter 20. But right now, time is running out, and Satan is seeking to get all of his demonic hosts, everything he can find on earth, and he wants to unleash them on the earth. And Scripture teaches us that over time, God has been taking specific demonic angels who are the most wicked, the most vile, the most perverted, and he's been holding them in a pit of punishment, not allowing them access to us. 2 Peter 2.4 For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, well now we're at the judgment. There are some really bad demons that God has been holding back. And now as part of this judgment, God is going to allow these demons to be released onto the earth. They're undoubtedly the most wicked, the most vile, the most perverted of all the fallen angels. Now just picture what would happen, just in your mind, if we tomorrow opened up all the penitentiaries. Every prison open now. Every person allowed to just go out and do whatever they want to do. Something worse than that is going to happen when this seal and trumpet is blown. The most diabolical, satanic, demonic beings are going to be released into the world and to allow their full expression, although limited by God in many ways, into the world. Satan opens up this bottomless pit thinking that this is going to be great for him and he's going to fight God. But this demonic power is going to get unleashed. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or the tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. God's going to allow these demonic hordes that have been 
imprisoned for a long time to descend on the earth like a swarm of locusts. These locusts aren't out to eat the crops. They're out to kill the people. They're going to swarm out like a plague on the earth. Similar to what happens in Egypt in one of the plagues when the locusts are released. Now, I have to tell you, I, I'm a believer in Christ for a lot of reasons, okay? And I don't want to be here while this is going on. But there's a unique, specific reason to me why I don't want to be here when this is going on. I am scared to death of scorpions. I'm just telling you. You want to know? I, I mean, scorpions to me, I knew before I read the Bible they came from the pit of hell. I had no doubt about it. When we lived in Arizona... These little scorpions, and they're, and they're clear. They're not, they don't even have like dark, they're just clear. And they get in your shoes, and they get in your jeans, and when they sting you, it's like one of the most painful things in the world. I worked in the emergency room, and we have kids that would come in, babies that had been stung by scorpions. It was horrible. They don't kill anybody. They just make them sicker than snot. They make them look horrible. And I was scared to death of scorpions. And so one night I'm upstairs and Tammy says I wouldn't kill him. I think she's lying, but she's a pastor's wife, so I'm going to listen to her. But she said that I, I was freaking out because there were scorpions in our bedroom. And there often were. You get up at night to walk and you get bit by a scorpion. And so I saw a scorpion and she says I yelled for her to come kill it. I think that's the part that's been exaggerated. <laughs> but in any event... We finally take care of that. We take care of this scorpion, and then I go to sleep. My lovely wife, who I've been married to for thirty-four years, decides to sneak up in the middle of the night, go up and touch my foot just like this. I've never before felt a ceiling fan hit my head, but I jumped out of that bed and I was running because I don't like scorpions. The power here is described like the power of scorpions. Man, that's enough to make you fall on your face and say, God, take me, please. I don't want to be here. But it turns out that these beasts, these scorpions, these locust-like demons can do whatever they want to anybody who does not have the seal of God. Remember, we got 144,000 Jewish evangelists who've been sealed by God. We have believers who've received the seal of God. And after a millennial of captivity, these demons, no doubt, probably want to kill everybody. But God says, no, you're not allowed to. You can only torture them for five months. Why five months? That's about how long locusts live. That's from the beginning to the end of their life cycle. But for five months, God says, no, you can't kill them. You can only torture them, you see, because I'm still hoping that somebody will cry out to me and ask me to save them. You see, because if you kill them, they're lost forever. But I'm a merciful God, and even at this point in the tribulation, I'm still trying to get people to come back to me. And my prayer, my hope is that people will turn to me, even in the midst of this, as they see these demonic locust scorpion things stinging and biting them and leaving the believers alone. Maybe then they'll understand that I'm God, and maybe then they'll turn back to me. The earth by this point has been almost completely destroyed. Fresh water supply is now bitter poison. The ocean has turned to blood. The, the, ocean, the tsunamis have wiped out the ocean. And, and, and all of this, the smoke from the pit of hell starts to rise up into the earth. This idea that the Antichrist was going to be utopia, I, I think people are given up on by this time. This world is falling apart. It's almost cracking from the inside out. It says in the Bible that people are going to want to die because of these attacks from these demons. But there's going to be no escape. Every attempt at suicide, whether gunshot, poison, drowning, leaping from buildings, is going to fail. Smoke pours up like, like the earth is just cracking in half. And if that's not bad enough, now we understand what they look like. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. Prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. 
Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails that sting like, there they are again, scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Okay, now scorpions don't seem so bad anymore. These guys got teeth like lions and hair like a woman and and they're flying all over. And then we find out that they're just not randomly flying. They're being led like an army. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon means destroyer. John mentions both the Hebrew and the Greek here to remind you that both Jewish and non-Jewish people are being tormented by these animals because they didn't believe in God. This is a high-ranking demon in Satan's hierarchy. For five months, the whole world will be under attack. But God's still in control. None of these judgments are out of his control. None of these judgments are beyond what he expects them to be. He's in total control, seeing judgment after judgment that's appropriate. And then we see this warning. The first woe was past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Wow. How much worse can this get? Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released for a specific purpose to kill a third of mankind. The number of troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And John says, I heard their number. See, John heard a voice. The, The term here is singular. The text describes one voice. It's likely John heard the voice of Jesus. It's not identified, but it's coming from the altar in heaven. That had always been a place before where you came and held on to the horns of the altar for mercy. Now there's no mercy left anymore. Just judgment. From this point forward, it appears that nobody repents. All who will be saved have been saved. We find that most of God's demonic angels have been allowed to roam freely on the earth. And and they're the ones that they're the principalities against which we wrestle. The the demons that have been allowed to, to be spiritually involved around us. But we find out that some high ranking demons have been bound by God. Four of them. And they've been bound in the river Euphrates. So right now there are four demons bound in the river Euphrates by God. That river is meant to provide life and food and water. It flowed out of the Garden of Eden at one point. But over the years, the, that, guard, that river has been the source of sin in the world. It starts near Mount Ararat in Turkey, flows more than 1,700 miles before it empties into the Persian Gulf. It's the longest and most important river in the Middle East figures prominently in the Old Testament. It was near the Euphrates that sin began. The first lie was told, the first murder was committed. The Tower of Babel, the place where humanism and all false religions were born and where other religions resulted and went out into the world was built there. Euphrates is the eastern boundary of the Promised Land and Israel's influence extended to the Euphrates during the time of David and Solomon. It was the central location of major world powers like Assyria and Babylon and Persia. It was on the banks of the Euphrates, if you remember, that many of the exiles to Babylon began to meet and to pray because they didn't have a temple there. And it'll be that river where the enemies of God are going to cross to engage in the battle of Armageddon. And yet it turns out that right now there are four Demons bound there waiting for the day, the time, the exact moment of their release so they can wipe out people. 
Who are these four demonic beings? Well, it's a definitive article, so it suggests that these four angels are actually from a very specific group. Their identity is not revealed. But many people believe that these are each the demons that have been controlling the four major empires of the world. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Whoever these four powerful fallen angels are, they control a demonic army. And God's going to release them to do what they do. These four angels aren't just going to torment man. They're going to kill him. Death, which had taken a holiday during the fifth trumpet, now returns with vengeance. We have about six billion people on the planet. So in this moment, about two billion people are likely to die. The judgment of the fourth seal, if you remember, killed about a fourth of the population. This was going to kill about a third. So at this moment, over half the people who were alive immediately after the rapture are, are no longer alive anymore. There's going to be human slaughter everywhere, decaying corpse everywhere. They won't be able to bury them. There's so many. Their number, the mass of the size of this demonic army, 200 million. In order to slaughter several billion people, you need a pretty powerful force. 200 million. Now that's likely an exact number because there were other words you could have used to describe a, a rounded up number. And John emphatically at the end says, as if he knew we would question that number because it's so big, he says, I heard the number of them. I'm not looking at them and guessing, I heard 200 million. These demonic things are going to be released into the world. Now, some have suggested that this is a symbolism of a, of a human army. In fact, they've said that the Chinese have over 200 million people in their armies, and that must be what this is talking about. But that happens during the sixth bowl judgment, not the sixth trumpet judgment. And because of the way these creatures are described in the supernatural way, it is far more likely that these are actually a supernatural demonic army that has been released out into the world. But notice how every action is still controlled and limited by God. These angels have a specific sphere of activity, a third of mankind. And they're only activated when God says it's time. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them wore breastplates of color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And heads of the horses were like a lion's head and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails and their tails were like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. These are worse than the locusts. They have smoke and sulfur coming out of them. They're described in these weird, grotesque kind of terms. It's a picture of horror and destruction and demonic association. Then, perhaps the most amazing verse in all of Revelation comes next. Now, picture all this stuff's happening. They know it's from God. They don't have any doubt. This is God. He is pouring out his judgment on earth. And look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The people at that time are going to ignore the preaching of the 144,000. They're going to ignore the two witnesses. They're going to ignore the miracle after miracle after miracle. They're going to ignore the fact that these demonic beings are attacking only those who don't believe in God. And the Bible says that even though all that's going on, they're still not going to turn back to God. It's unimaginable that after years of suffering, all the evangelists that these people are still going to refuse to repent. In fact, the Bible says they're not only not going to repent, they're going to curse God. By this time, they have firmly chosen 
to be with the forces of evil. What's happened, God says, is that their heart has hardened towards God. They're in outright rebellion. You remember in Exodus when the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened? And a lot of us look at that and we go, well, that's not fair. And we picture that Pharaoh had some soft heart and God just said, I'm going to harden your heart so that you'll do what I want you to do. When we talk about Hebrew words, I say it all the time, but every Hebrew word has not only a meaning, but a picture image that goes with it. That's why it's an incredible language for them to explain the things of Jesus and the things of Jewish history. Okay, And so what happened is there's an image that goes with this word of hardening your heart. And the image is this. The image is a rope tied in a knot to a boat that's up against the dock. Okay? And that rope has a knot in it. And the knot is loose. But as that boat begins to pull away and repetitively try to go away from the dock, that knot starts to tighten. And what happens is what's in that knot, the water, begins to be expressed. Okay, And so when people read that someone's heart was hardened, what it means is, is that as you constantly keep pulling away from God, it's not that God hardens your heart, it's that your pulling away tightens that knot on your own. God allows it to happen, but as you keep pulling away from God, you become hardened to Him in whatever area of your life you're doing. I see it in medicine all the time. A heart that pumps against heavy pressure eventually does what every muscle does. It just gets bigger. But there's a point at which that pressure is so big that the heart begins to stiffen. And then the heart continues to stiffen and it starts to fail. And there's a point of no return where you can no longer salvage the heart because it's been fighting against such pressure for so long. That's the image that comes with this idea of people in this time. They will have been pulling away from God so much that they literally tighten that knot. Not God doing it, they're doing it. And eventually they resist too long and they get past the point of no return. And John tells us, let me describe to you what a world is like. When the only people left on the world have had their hearts and have chosen to harden their hearts towards God. He says they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see, hear or walk. The first thing he says happens is, look, they're into idolatry. Their hearts are so hardened that they're into spiritualism and Satanism and idolatry and mysticism. And that false religions are going to be pandemic. And they're going to be unbridled and unrestrained wickedness that runs amok like has never been seen before in all of human history. Second thing the Bible says in this verse is there's going to be murders. They're going to be rampant. Without any sense of morality or evil, unrepentant People are going to respond to the demonic thoughts and actions that are put in them. They will no doubt pick Christians, if there's any left, as their target. Third says sorceries. Sorceries are going to run rampant. The same word where we get sorcery, sorcery is where we get pharmacy. Drugs were and still at that time believed to bring you into a state of worship with a false god means there's going to be poisons and charms and witchcraft and incantations and magic spells and mediums. People go deeper, deeper into satanic trappings. The fourth sin is immorality. Immorality, the word there is porneia. It's where we get pornography. It means that there's going to be sexual sins of every variety rampant around the world. Rape, homosexuality, adultery, fornication. And then finally, the fifth is theft. People are going to be scrambling for whatever they can get. That's what the world looks like when God is completely out of it and people's hearts have hardened. And under the influence of these demonic forces, the world's going to descend into this mass sort of morass of false religion and murder and sexual perversion and crime unparalleled in human history. And we haven't even got to the bold judgments yet. 
So after all that God's done for them, all the witnessing, all the miracles, all the evidence where he just keeps saying, please come back. Please come back. I don't want to have to do Don't make me pull the next seal out, please. They continually pull away and harden their hearts. And you may be thinking, how stupid are they? How dumb are they? God wants them to go a certain direction. They're pulling away. They're hardening their hearts. Be careful. Is there an area in your life where you're pulling away from what you know God wants you to do? Trying to go your own way, maybe? Tightening that knot that is your heart? God trying to draw you towards him and away from a sin area in your life, but you're resisting, you're pulling away. You see, it seems obvious to us when it's extreme. When we see it in Revelation, we go, oh, how in the world could they do this? But when we start thinking about ourselves, we don't often see it. We see it in other people. We'll point it out. Believe me, just come up here. We'll point it out to you. But we don't see it in ourselves. When it's subtle... What area of your life right now is God poking his finger on? Only you and he know. But as we're sitting here, he's going, this is what I, your heart's hardened over here. Do you know that? You're pulling away from me. I keep trying to draw you back to me, but you keep pulling away and you're just getting harder and harder. Will you please come back? Is there some part of your heart that's keeping you from your first love? Maybe a relationship that you know God doesn't honor. The sin, maybe, that only you and God know about. The thing you keep trying to forget, but it keeps coming back. Maybe it's the way you've handled your finances. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe you need to confess a wrong that you've done to somebody. Maybe it's your kids, and you need to ask your kids for forgiveness. Maybe you're a child or a young adult and you need to honor your father and your mother. Whatever it is, God is waiting. And the longer you keep pulling that part of your life away from what you know God wants you to do, the harder and harder it gets to come back to where he wants you to be. Because you're tightening that knot. And every day that you keep resisting, it just gets a little bit stiffer. In Revelation, people who don't know Jesus are going to tighten that knot so tight in their heart that they get past the point of no return. But for God's children, for us, for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is showing you the area of your life where your heart is beginning to harden so you'll return. This is your moment. Given to you and me by God to allow him to soften our heart as we confess, ask for forgiveness, and return to his way of doing whatever it is he wants us to do in that area of his life. It's literally as we release the tension and we stop pulling away, that knot loosens. And Jesus just reaches down and starts loosening it back up for us as he forgives us and draws us back towards him. It's very easy to look into Revelation and point fingers at people who've hardened their hearts to God. Very difficult to look at your own heart and ask God to examine it. So for the next few minutes, we're going to spend some time in silence, quiet. Altars open. If you want to come down here and pray, you can come down here and pray. But my suspicion is in a room this size, full of sinners like we all are, That God's reminding you of an area of your life where he's asking you to quit resisting him. And I just want us to leave tonight knowing that every area Jesus wants to work in our heart is open and loose and drawn towards him and not against him. Let's pray. God, I am uh, amazed that you reveal to us what's to come. But you don't tell us what's to come just so we know the future. You tell us what's to come because you want it to impact the way we live today. Because God, you didn't bring us here for information. You, bring us here, you brought us here for transformation. There are things you want to do in each of our hearts right now. There are things that you want to tear away. There's ugliness in our hearts that you want to pull out. 
There's a rebellion in us where we're just pulling away from you and you want us to stop. Because you have such a better plan than the one we're chasing. So right now, Holy Spirit, in this place, would you bring conviction? Would you bring repentance? Would you allow your forgiveness to float over us? Please, God, don't leave us the way we were when we walked into this place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God, I know it's your desire that you work in all of our hearts. None of us have this all figured out. Every one of us has a place 
in our lives where we know that we just need to turn back to you. So God, I pray that you give us the courage to do what your spirit is telling us to do. Pray that you move us back to you. God, please guard us against a hardened heart in any area of our lives where you want to work. We just love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you most of all for Jesus. And we thank you that you're revealing him to us through this study. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.